This is That 80s Show, and today we are speaking to Jason Curtis. Now, Jason was the editor of Top 40 Magazine, which was a music magazine in South Africa, and was also very much involved in the music industry for a number of years. Jason, how are you today? Where do we find you in the world? What's happening in your life? Good afternoon, and yeah, thanks, Barrett. It's good to chat to you, and uh, yeah, uh, congratulations on an extraordinary show. I think you're doing some great work. Thank you. Um, I find myself in Cape Town. Um, I've been in Cape Town for the last 22 odd years. Um, I actually came down to Cape Town um, expressly to uh, take over the editorship the editorship of Top 40 magazine uh, back in 1999. So relatively late in the day, but I had been contributing to the magazine uh, for a good decade before that. So my journey began in music from a journalistic perspective back in 1991. Um, so yeah, it's um, this is the 80s show, but everything that was early uh, 90s was influenced and was certainly very um, active during the 90s. So um, as you've experienced with the interviews that you continue to do. So yeah, that's kind of where I find myself. And yeah, I've been involved in the music industry um, pretty much since that time. I've, I've had a passion for music since the age of 11 or 12. Um, and my first single that I ever bought was Talk, 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 Talk. Okay. So their debut single on 7-inch uh, from the CNA, which was um, the place to go to get your music back in those days. Um, and that relationship with music hasn't left me. Um, it started, I think, in a garage in Edenvale back in the 70s when I used to sit with my father's reel-to-reel recorder and try and replicate uh, KW, what was it called? KW, whatever it was. It was a show on SABC. It was an American show. Oh, WKRP uh, in Cincinnati. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And basically I would sit in front of the microphone and <laughs> basically mimic the fact that I was a um, a, a, a DJ on radio and that was before the age of 10 so yeah music has stayed with me since that age I'm currently 52 so you can do the math on that and I remain heavily invested in the in the overall entertainment economy to this day it's interesting because Dory and Paolo their favorite shows kids were WKRP in Cincinnati as well and they in the radio industry so it motivated them yeah. to get into that space. And tell me, how many yeah. years was the Top 40 magazine in existence for? It was around for 19 years, of which I edited the final three years of its living kind of printed reality. And then it, uh, we worked really hard to um, move it into a digital space. Um, so that happened probably at around about 2001, 2002, um, because obviously everything was kind of uh, pivoting towards digital. So we had to move very quickly into that digital space. And we did it, I think, very effectively um, at the time. But the, the overall music industry had fundamentally changed from the way that it was selling music, how it was marketing music. So it was a very interesting time to, to play in that space and just understand this, this new technology that was kind of still relatively new. I mean, if you think about it, late 90s, the internet had only been around, you know, for four or five years at that stage. Mm -hmm. So it was still a relatively new concept and nobody truly understood the power of it and what it could actually do. Obviously, we understand that now because we live it. So yeah, Top 40 was kind of a legacy beast that responded to a particular audience in, in a, at a particular time, a bit like SABC TV, when you were reliant on 
<clears throat> what was delivered to you or that you could pick up in the CNA. You didn't have the benefit of the internet to check information or to listen to something streaming. Um, you, were, you would wait, you know, diligently wait for the next issue of Top 40 to arrive. Yeah, so basically it was, it was a time when kids would put posters on walls um, of their favorite bands and artists. And we looked to try and appeal to as broad an audience, because if you think about it, you know, South Africa is, is always, its music tastes have been informed by kind of Europe and America. So it was a weird mix of both of those influences. And then you obviously had the local component as well. But we did suffer from that terrible term that was massively overtraded called local is lacquer. <laughs> which did yeah. no favors to the South African music industry because everybody kind of assumed that South African music was kind of second or played played uh, second fiddle to what was happening in the rest of the world. And that really wasn't true. I think our production standards were, were not to par, but the music that was being generated and created out of South Africa was extraordinary. But, you know, radio also didn't didn't support local music in the way that it should have. And I think Top 40 definitely tried to, you know, promote the the Sugar Drives, the Amish Jams, the, you know, the, the band certainly of the time that I was involved with Top 40. But Top 40's uh, legacy is, um, you know, the, the way that people feel about it, it's a very emotional uh, thing because it was... You know, there was nothing else to distract you away from what was happening. Um, yeah. Like I said, you didn't, you didn't have Netflix, you didn't have DSTV, you didn't have the world streaming around you. You had to wait for this content to arrive and it was printed. Um, and then you paid your 15 rand for it. Um, and then you went home and you consumed it and you put the posters on the walls and you sang back the lyrics that were, you know, that were published in the magazine. So, yeah, a very sentimental time, I think. So it's similar, I remember as a kid, collecting the UK smash hits and number one yep. uh, magazine. So I, I loved all of that. You know, it was waiting for that anticipation of receiving it and seeing who was being interviewed and seeing who was being featured. And mm. I very much followed the charts at the time. And I always used to look at those magazines and think that artist should be getting more <laughs> exposure. They're not getting enough exactly. exposure. <laughs> exactly. And, that, and the thing is the top 40, you know, as it evolved, I mean, it was, it was started back in the day by Joe Teron and it was JT Publishers that started it. And then when CDs arrived, you know, in the, in the late eighties, I think one of the first commercial release CDs was, dire straits brothers in arms um then they kind of realized that hold on there's a market there that they need to tap into but top 40 kind of modeled itself on being kind of a, a number one or a, a combination of number one and kind of smash hits because it was it was a pop magazine it was about what pop culture was you know what was what was being played on the radio what was radio five back in the day playing and we were traditionally we were about 90 days behind the rest of the world so when you were reading smash hits it was it was an issue that was three months old when it landed from the ship right so you know we we, we suffered this weird lag but by the time we got the magazine the music had actually arrived in the country which was great but um there was this weird kind of delay so you felt weirdly current because of what you were reading in smash hits but it was actually already three months old if you follow my logic yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely when you were a journalist 
before becoming editor for the magazine. What what did that mean? What was it a full-time job, part-time job? And what were you actually doing for the magazine pre-coming becoming the editor? Well, interestingly, <clears throat> I got into, into it professionally because um, a very good friend of mine, a school friend of mine, landed up being um, getting a job as the art director at Top 40 magazine in 1991. Again, early 90s. And he, um, I think a few weeks into his job, he was handed a kind of a pile of CDs and said, oh, don't you just want to write some reviews for the magazine? Um, and he was new, so he didn't want to disappoint anyone. So he said, yes, no, of course I'll do it. And then he got in his car, drove to my my flat in Sunnyside, uh, Pretoria, and said, dude, you've got to help me. And, uh, and at that point, I was studying journalism, well, I was studying English at, um, at UNISA, and somehow he thought that I would be able to do this. So I said, lovely, I'll happily do it because I'm getting three new CDs that I didn't have to pay for. Yeah. And so his reviews, they were published under his name. And I think clearly the editor at the time was happy and went back to this friend of mine, um, Ken, and said, great, will you do some more? And then he kind of fessed up and said, no, it wasn't me. It was my friend, Jason. They said, we don't care how this happened, just introduce us to Jason. So I then uh, got introduced to them. They then started sending me what I needed to review. And I think I was, I was paid. <laughs> it was, yeah, I, I, what do you, I can't even recall what I got paid, but I think at one point I was writing pretty much 90% of the magazine as a freelancer and being paid the equivalent of about 1200 Rand. Oh, um, but it was, it was pure passion um, because yeah. music was my passion. And the reason why I did it was because it gave me access to the music that I loved. So there was a lot of stuff in there that I didn't like, but I, I was always open to everything, whether it was blues, whether it was rock, whatever it was, dance music, I never truly understood, but I, I, I immersed myself in it because I wanted to be able to do right by it and try and understand why everybody else was thinking that this was the next big thing. So long story short, it was very selfish. It was, you know, music was expensive to buy. Yep. And so now all of a sudden I had access to this music and it was being given to me and I was happy to write the reviews literally in, in, in a barter system where it's because if you give me the music, I'll write the review. I get to keep the music, you know, and I'm golden. But what I did do in the very early days was that I realized the second that I had something published, I could then go to the record companies and say to them, hi, I'm the guy from Top 40 who wrote the review about your artist, whether it was The Farm or, you know, um, something that um, the cash was doing or whatever it was, and say, I'd like to interview these people. And so that was what I did. It, it gave me an in so that the record companies would take my calls. And so then I said, there's this artist called Tori Amos, and I really want to interview her um, because, yes, I love her album. I've reviewed her album, but I want to talk to her. So whether it was Erasure, whether it was Luther Vandross, whether it was, say, Depeche Mode, um, that was how I got access because I had a platform that I could show to the record companies that I was doing work for them already. And then I became their friends and I would go through to each of the record labels every week diligently get in my car during my lunch break from my normal day job to pick up all the new music um, and then go away. And when everyone else was watching the rugby on the weekend, I was writing an interview. These interviews you're speaking of, were they for Top 40 magazine or you were still doing them for yourselves? I was doing them independently. <clears throat> so what I did was I, I widened my network very quickly because obviously I had Top 40 as a base because I was a freelancer writing to, you know, for them. But then not everything, not every interview opportunity that came up was necessarily a, a good fit for Top 40. So then I went to 
the likes of the star and I went to you know the independent group and said hey I've just done an interview with you know with um whichever artist mm-hmm. um you know, Lenny Kravitz or whoever it may have been at the time and I said hey would, would you like this interview as an exclusive and they would say yes great and then they would take that interview and syndicate it but I would always offer it to top 40 first and if they declined it then I I, I would obviously look further to the point that I pretty much wrote for every major magazine and newspaper over a probably a 20 odd year period of time and kind of I mean, I think my biggest coup was getting an interview that I did with David Sylvian from Japan, um, a very you know, prolific um, 80s band. And I thought, you know, literally in South Africa, there would be 50 people who actually knew who David Sylvian was and who Japan were as a band. Mm-hmm. And I managed to get it onto the cover of the Sunday Times magazine, which in, in its day, if you got onto the, you know, if you got into the newspaper first and foremost, that was a coup. But if you could get onto the cover of the magazine, which was kind of the, you know, the, the sweet spot of your Sunday reading. And I managed to get this interview and the cover with David Sylvian, and um, which I, I laugh about to this day. But it's remarkable how, you know, I would push these interviews because For me, ultimately, as a journalist, what I wanted to do was to marry the story behind the music that we were all listening to and loving. And with the backstory, then having the music that you loved being kind of amplified by understanding, you know, what the Cranberries were writing about and the motivation behind the lyric or whether it was Texas or whether it was whoever it was at the time. My point was to kind of be the bridge between the music and the artist. And that's and that's kind of what I did. So you were basically basically Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for the day. <laughs> <laughs> Very well said. Yes. <laughs> I totally was. And I was a complete prostitute in the sense that what I wanted to do was to whoever would publish something, I would give it to them. And in some cases, I gave a lot of my work away pro bono because I just wanted the story to land so that it would satisfy the record company so that the record company would keep me in good favor or that I would be in good favor with them because I wanted to keep that channel open because I've, you know, I remain hungry to this day to hear and be a part of this, you know, music that's being created but as much as you know people who I was working with a you know I was working with a a pool there was probably about five to eight um, freelance and active journalists who were writing in the entertainment space when there were when there were newsrooms you know that had people in them and they had sub-editors and entire teams putting you know content together and a lot of these guys would go oh no I'm not going to speak to Cheryl Crow at three o'clock in the morning and then I'd get the call saying Jason there's an interview opportunity with Cheryl Crow do you want to do it but it's three o'clock on a Sunday morning and I would go yes I never ever turned an interview down not once whether it was three o'clock in the morning or you know at some ungodly hour I took it because you know it was that rare moment where you got 15 minutes maybe 30 minutes if you were lucky with an artist and it was a joy just to spend time with them um, and get to know them and in many cases I built firm friendships with a lot of the artists where you know four or five interviews in we'd land up spending half the time speaking about the dog and poll tax and everything else before we actually got into talking about the music which was lovely i totally agree because now doing the interviews for that 80s show i'm creating friendships and relationships with some of these artists and one of my favorite singers from the 80s phoned me the other day and now we're having whatsapp messages over the phone and a couple of weeks ago i was busy 
at work having like a 10 minute conversation with her. And I'm like, I sat back in my chair and I'm like, what just happened right now? <laughs> this is so bizarre. <laughs> but then we realize that, yes, they are artists. That's the field they've chosen to work in or participate in and i've said this to all my friends and so many people we all use the same toilet paper it's either one ply or two ply. no one's got exactly. gold, gold plated or platinum toilet paper so whenever i go into an interview i like okay cool you using the same not exactly the same but the same toilet paper as i and we are on the same level everyone is on the same level there are ultimately they are human beings right and some of some of the closest interactions that i've had with say with with various artists on a very human level whether it say it was depeche mode or luther vandross or you know janet jackson at the end of the day these are people they are human beings and they suffer all the fallibilities and foibles that we all do but they present right they are performers so we see them way up there but at the end of the day i, I remember sitting with the late great luther vandross at the westcliff um, in joburg at a, at a time in his career when he had just fired his manager of like 25 years as he got off the plane in johannesburg and being obviously um, distraught but none of the hundred people that he had brought in with him were interested in suffering his real life truth and i sat with him literally on waiting for a you know for a ride down to the reception and he kind of just unbundled and and shared with me and I respected that space and I think that's why the people that you're talking to now if you treat them with respect as I've always done with every interview that I've ever done is that you take the time to pay attention but as in deep listen to what they're saying and you allow the interviews to go where they want them to go because you will always get what you need from the interview if you take it where they want to because if you think about it certainly when an artist like Coldplay or whoever it is is in a releasing a new album they're doing kind of 20 to 30 interviews a day yeah so by the time you get to them as poor old South Africa you know number interview number 28 they are tired they have been asked the same question a hundred times and they just they just want to go to bed or they just want to go and be normal people and so many of the interviews that I've done where I, I think I remember interviewing um, Snow Patrol where I did an entire interview and they said to me okay well let's start the interview and I said well we've just done it and they went what do you need and I said no no everything that I needed I got by just having a very open, frank and respectful conversation. And they were completely blown away. They didn't know what to, and it's about, you know, getting to someone like, who was it? It was, um, I'm trying to remember his name. It was like a one hit wonder, but literally getting to him after he had just had a particularly bad interview with a journalist who hadn't done his research, hadn't done his homework. And then I get him. So now he's agitated and I've got 15 minutes and I've got to try and get my story out of this man. And to talk him off the ledge, bring him down. And that takes about four to five minutes. And I've only got 10 minutes left to get what I need. And then that's the sweet spot. And, and immediately, the second that they, they can hear that you're paying attention yep. and you're not just firing questions at them, you get real gold, you get gems, you get some of their soul, which is kind of what you're going for. Yeah, we all know where the album was recorded. We all yep. know who the producer was. We all know, you know, it was done in 10 days, but give me the motivation. How did, you know, how did this song that means so much to me, I mean, Alanis Morissette, classic example, you know, I mean, you know, Jagged Little Pull was a very, was a deep album, you know, and there was a lot to unpack. Um, but people, most of the journalists just kind of flew over the top of it. Whereas, uh, you know, these artists are intelligent people and they, they very quickly pick up on the journalists who are invested, have done the research. 
and are being respectful of their time. You know, it's interesting because I used to do much more research pre um, the Leo Sayer interview, and I used to write out all the questions. And I mm. found that by doing that, it lacked the flow of just having a conversation. So now what yeah. I do, unless they ask the questions, I say, I just start talking. And it's about being engaged what they're saying and diving yeah. deeper. And, and let them take it. Let them take it where they want it to go. And you'll get your answers. Yeah, because you'll have your 10 questions that you and you very delftfully as they talk, you talk to those various points, um, but in their language. So you kind of learn to speak Leo Sayer. You learn to speak whichever artist it is that you're interviewing um, because you're, you're deep listening to how they are responding. Um, and it's a, I think it's, it's a skill. It's a bit of an art to be able to do that. Well, if you think of it, every person should be doing it because whether they're interviewing someone as a journalist or not, when they're talking to each other, they should be listening and should be engaged in what their respondent is saying to them. If they're invested, which sadly, you you know, you know, are the exception. The majority of them are just, they're doing their job. So they're just kind of going through the motions and there's nothing more soul-destroying with something like music, which is an entirely creative reality where someone's just firing questions at you and not listening to what you are actually saying and picking up on kind of the nuance of you know of that conversation and also don't you agree that a lot of journalists are on are trained to pick up in inverted commas the dirt and how to create that dirt into a mud pile of sensationalism in order to mm. create you know a fora because human nature is we want the tasty sensationalist negative elements so if it's positive yeah. and affirming and good well they sort of brush it over because it's like oh this isn't juicy enough for me yeah yeah no it's it's, it's tragic because we've become so tabloid in our thinking um but there is an audience out there that that is that are true fans of these artists um and they don't want that they don't want the sensationalism they don't what they want to know is they want to get a little bit closer to this artist that has informed and formed so much of you know that either their youth or their adulthood and they they want to get a lot closer i mean more recently i did an interview with josh groban and you know you know he's you know again he's an artist from the 90s but still he's you know that was where his career started what would have been even early 90s the point being that what people were looking for was a connection with this this artist that they loved so it is sad when you have a tabloid mentality which is tragic because the reason why these these journalists are trained this way is that it's all obviously clickbait so it's a, yeah. it's a case of numbers and getting shareability and likes and everything else the weird thing is is that my approach has always been an organic one so that if the message is good um and if it's well presented you can you can achieve what you need to in an authentic way and respect Respect the the artist's integrity in in an, in an entirely organic way, which I kind of like because if it does if it does for whatever reason trend, then it trends in a respectful way, and you're not trading on the fact that you saw somebody's top drop or you saw them you know bitch slap somebody or whatever the case is, you know. And what? That's not news, you know. That's just like what I want to know is. You know, what was Susie Carter thinking about when she wrote, you know, her, her biggest hit? That's the stuff that if you can land it in a way that I can give you new information that nobody knew before or that few people knew before, that's the stuff that's gold. That's the stuff that's shareable. 
That's the stuff that gives you credibility as a, you know, certainly in your case as Cliff Central is going, I heard it first there because they took the time to do the heavy lifting and understand that at the time that she wrote that song, she wasn't in a particularly good place. When when an artist realizes that, then they go, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the, my time, and guess what? I'm gonna give you some nuggets that I know my you know their fans will enjoy because it's not information that's in the public domain. So mining for that stuff comes from them hearing you having done that level of work. And that you are respecting and keeping them safe because your job is not to out them. You don't want to put them on you know, the front page of you know, a tabloid newspaper. What you want to do is help them tell their story so that their songs can, you know, can, can, can fly. Perfectly put. Now, I understand that you were involved in some capacity with some of these artists when they toured South Africa. Tell us more about yeah. that. One of the many interviews that I did in the early 90s was with a band called The Outsiders. Um, and they were this indie rock band from Pretoria. And I was living in Pretoria and working in Pretoria at the time. And I went and interviewed this band in Sunny Park. I'm not sure if that still exists as a building or place to shop. But um, so, yeah, we, we hooked up at a coffee shop. We had an interview, um, did the interview. It was for Top 40. So that was great. Um, the next day I get a phone call from the the guy who started the band, Druki uh, Buerta. Um, and he said, don't you want to manage us? And I said, um, and, and I had a day job at this stage. And I said, dude, I, I, I've never managed a band in my life, but um, I'm happy to help. And he told me all the tragic tales of the five managers that they'd had before them who had all taken the money and run. And so I then started to manage this band called The Outsiders. And I um, helped secure gigs for them and, uh, you know, th that kind of thing and just make sure that, all of their kind of uh, record contract stuff was sorted. And then this opportunity came along when Depeche Mode arrived um, in 1994. Um, one of the first bands, certainly at the time, I mean, 1994, not a, not a small year in South Africa's history. Yeah. And um, the band was signed to David Gresham. And David Gresham at the time had the rights to the Mute catalogue. And one of the Mute artists happened to be Depeche Mode. And in those days, if an international act came into South Africa, there had to be a local support artist. Yep. So um, I then got pushed into a room with Roddy Quinn to negotiate a contract with big concerts to have the outsiders support Depeche Mode. And this was a band who was current. They weren't you know, the Frank Sinatras and the Shirley Basseys that played at Sun City, you know, in the in the 80s. Um, this was a band that had a brand new album. They were touring the world and they came to South Africa. And it was a completely new reality. It was something that was, you know, it was, we had never experienced anything like that ever in South Africa. And so I negotiated this contract with Roddy. And, um, you know, it was, it was, it was torrid um, from a payment perspective, but we obviously took it because it was an extraordinary opportunity for the band. And we played, I think we played three or four nights at the Standard Bank Arena at the time. We did two shows in Cape Town. We did one in Durban, um, but we basically did this national tour and, you know, and I was managing this band. So I would obviously just take leave from work um, and then travel around the country um, touring with one of the greatest bands in the world, you know, for, you know, for 10 or uh, 14 days. And it was, um, it took us from being very backyard kind of third world into a very first world cutting edge reality. Um, and it was an extraordinary experience. And 
And then after that, I landed up working uh, for EMI as the head of international promotions. And that was when I got the opportunity to work with artists who were coming into South Africa um, as part of the their international touring programs. So yeah, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the Janet Jacksons of the world, the placebos of the world, Massive Attack, um, Garbage, all of those, those bands. Um, I was kind of had a weird role in chaperoning and looking after them and making sure that they were well looked after while they were in South Africa. So lots of uh, wonderful memories. Top 40 is now no longer digital. Am I correct? Or is this, there anything happening? Long defunct. Yes, it is sadly very long defunct. Um, it certainly doesn't exist as far as I know. I edited the final issue, I think, in 2002. Um, and after which the, the then publisher of the magazine got it on a plane and headed off to Canada, never to be seen again. And it was tragic because the magazine should not have died, um, but it did. But the trademark was owned by the publisher. And who knows, you know, maybe at some point um, she may decide to resuscitate it. But it lived for 19 years. And the likes of Alex J and many of the DJs that we know and love to this day are the featured or uh, contributed towards its success and it, it you know it, it's a piece of history a bit like number one and um, smash hits they yeah. don't exist today but they are you know kind of part of the foundation of where pop music is today Dari asked me to ask you about the pen pal section in top 40 magazine she met one of her dearest friends through that pen pal section and you know what was the inspiration for that and was it a way to connect music aficionados in the country because naturally there wasn't any social media or any of those type of things so did you guys see it as a way to create a foundation of music fans and connecting them together it was a bridge exactly that because as you point out there was no internet there was no there was no other way that you could connect with um you know with a you know certainly with musicians and with your audience so it was literally like creating communities yeah, and giving people an opportunity to literally put pen to paper um, and become part of that little network. And I mean, you know, I remember, again, I'm kind of fast forwarding, but I remember in 1994, when I got invited to Barcelona to interview Radiohead, reaching out to, in those days, again, rudimentary internet, um, to kind of chat forums going, I'm about to get on a plane and fly to Barcelona to interview Radiohead. And I would target these various fan groups that had been set up and say to them, well, give me your questions that you've always wanted to ask Tom York or anyone else in the band, and I will get them answered for you and I'll bring them back. And that's what Top 40 was doing, you know, with that pen pal section was going talk to us because we've kind of got access. Well, we're certainly closer to the artist than you will ever be. So let's create a community that celebrates a particular artist, you know, whether that was Duran Duran or, you know, Millie Vanilli or whoever it was. And then taking those messages, um, presenting them to the record company who would hear us because if you were Joe Brog living in Boxburg, no one would take your call. So we kind of looked at ways of trying to get fans' voices heard. Um, and it was very powerful because I think if you received feedback on your request, it probably it influenced you massively in your life where, you know, someone that you loved and, you know, were fanatical about, you kind of get this letter sent back to you going, you know, hi, Barrett, um, thanks for reaching out. 
you know, um, appreciate your comments or whatever the yeah. feedback was. I mean, it's that that's gold. That's gold that you and you can't put a price on that. So that I think was the point was creating a community and then where we could be able to respond to as much of it as we could, because as you say, it was pre-internet. So it was literally sending faxes and it was telephone calls, but it was a, it was a, a rich community that, um, that I think the, the audience of the magazine appreciated. It was a community that were no trolls and it wasn't filtered and it was real. <laughs> Imagine quite a novel concept in 2022, right? It's like, well, nobody had any ill intention other than if, if they could be accused of anything that they were selfishly wanting to literally be front and center with an artist, a bit like a meet and greet. And I remember doing many of those where, you know, I've never suffered, the, I've probably done three or four interviews in the thousands that I've done where you suffer that fanboy moment where you're just going, it's that person yeah, and, yeah. you know you you know what I mean for the most part I've never suffered that but there are a few where it's very clear that I'm suffering from a fanboy moment can you imagine what that's like for an average fan if I said to you yeah this is your favorite artist of all time and it's defined how you've lived your life to this point and I'm going to give you 15 minutes with this person yeah. I mean it's just it's going to be you, you can't buy that. And, and we did that for a lot of people. And I, I think that's the joy of music is that music doesn't only bring people together. You know, it breaks down so many barriers. I mean, we saw it in 1985, you know, at the concert in the park. You know, all of a sudden you had people who, you know, were racially divided coming together you know, for an entire day um, celebrating music, black, white, and everything in between. And uh, and that's kind of, that's the power of music. That's what music can do and does to this day, you know, regardless of what we suffer, troll and otherwise. It's interesting you're saying that these meet and greets, the artist doesn't know any of these people and is, you know, no. and yet all these people think they know the artists because they've read the magazine articles, they've followed their tweets, yeah. they've got their music. Yeah. And yeah. I'm sure there were instances where the fan was somehow let down potentially in the sense that I know you, you're supposed to know me in inverted commas. Oh, yeah. And there's that the disappointment factor is high. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. There's a lot has been written about it as well, is that you should never meet you know, you should never meet your idols because you will be disappointed because in your mind you've had, you know, 10 years to build up this image of, you know, meeting the late great Mark Hollis from Talk Talk. And when you meet him, you know, he's as dry as a piece of toast and is completely non. And you're like going, but you're Mark Hollis, you should be brilliant. And um, yet he's not. And you're like going, well, yeah, because now you're, you're peeling back a layer mm -hmm. that wasn't presented to you in the final execution. So, you know, it's, um, yeah, you know, it's in the same way that, you know, you meet someone like Michael Jackson and you go, yeah, but you're Michael Jackson and you can do the moonwalk and you do all of this stuff. And then you meet him and he comes across as a bit kind of wet and naff and you're like going, oh, that's disappointing. But you didn't buy into them for that. You bought into them for what they delivered. Yeah. So there is that weird moment where you kind of decide, do I really want to get to know you better? Do I want you to be a bedfellow or do I just want you to be what I have built up in my mind yeah. you know, as, a, as a fan of your music? Most of the people meet those artists thinking they use gold plated toilet paper. And then when yep. they realize then use 
one or two ply, it's a bit of a shock to their system. I think it is because yeah. of how arguably the job that I did. And look, you know, I've, I've spent my career making a lot of artists who are not particularly either smart or they're particularly gifted at what they do but they can't articulate their genius. I've, I've had to present them in a way where they, they sound like gold loo roll. Um, <laughs> but if, when you speak to them, there's, you know, you're, you're, you're talking to one ply. So it's, um, it's, a, it's a challenge because what you're trying to do is land the music, not necessarily the things that they're not particularly good at. So you're really trying to keep them safe from their, you know, their fallibilities and their foibles, um, because that's not the point. Their job, they're entertainers. They're there to entertain. But at the end of the day, they're also people. So a lot of the artists that I've interviewed are brilliant musicians, but they really suck at life. They're just not good at it. But put them on a stage and they become somebody else completely different. And that's what I look to protect. That's what I look to present because their personal life is exactly that. It's their personal life. And it's not for you or I to question that. What we should celebrate is what they deliver. And we can challenge them on what that is. But on the rest of it, that's by permission only. Yeah. And many of the interviews that you've done and the access that they've given you is is by permission. Absolutely. But where we interact with anyone in life, myself and you, strangers in the street, we can either walk next to each other and not say a word, or we can look at each other, engage energetically and speak, but it's agreed and invited. So Exactly. Respectful. Exactly. This has been an interesting episode of that 80s show. Jason, what final comment or for the people who just listen to the music, just receive the delivery of that artistic creation. What words of wisdom, gold ply toilet paper, <laughs> <laughs> would you suggest or give to them as the bridge between the artists and the music and them? I would say, and these aren't pearls of wisdom or gold laced toilet rolls, it's make it your own as it's always been, because music is a very personal experience. You know, the way that you taste wine and the way that I taste wine, very different. We're drinking from the same bottle, but we're tasting different things. So it makes it very personal and keep it that way because it's your journey, your experience, and don't let the noise or the trolls or anyone else in between taint that. Your interpretation and your respect and enjoyment of the thing that you are hearing, that's kind of what it's about because it's personal. And it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks or says, because it's your it's your journey. And that's the joy of music is that, you know, whether you're Ed Sheeran or uh, Dua Lipa or whoever it is, you know, in current terms, your relationship is very personal. So you take the things from the things you read, uh, the music that you hear, and you internalize that. And it kind of forms how you, how you see the world and how you appreciate the world. So yeah, keep it personal and um, don't, don't buy into, you know, into tabloid and silliness. Just um, listen or deep listen to the music and enjoy it because ultimately that's what it's about. We are creating the soundtrack to the journey of our lives. Exactly. And it's your journey. It's independent of the rest of the world. And how wonderful is that in a world where it's filled with so many other distractions that you can create a space that's uniquely yours, informed by so many of these extraordinary artists from Leo Sayer, from Elton John, you know, from Jim Morrison, 
whoever it may be. These people have informed and are building blocks to each of us. So you've got a bit of Jim Morrison in you. You've got a bit of eagles in you. You've got imagination thrown in in between. That's kind of, that's your quirk. That's what makes you who you are. So if, if I had to define you musically, it would be a rich space because it's filled with not necessarily one particular genre. It could be Pink Floyd. You know, it could be a bit of Joy Division. It could be uh, Terence Trent Darby, as you were mentioning earlier. And that's wonderful because that's unique to you. Because my journey is, yes, there's some Terence in there. Absolutely. There's Kylie in there. There's a whole bunch of other things. And that's where the commonality comes in, where we can talk about, you know, if we did come together around a table and break bread, we would talk about the things that really excite us about each of those artists' music. And that that makes for rich conversation. You finished off on Kylie, which is actually my favorite artist. So I'm just giggling to myself. <laughs> so Jason, it's been a pleasure diving into the world of the media, music, and everything in between with two-ply to- toilet paper. So this and is single. A, and single ply, yes. And maybe some newspaper. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> so Imagine. This, <laughs> so this is That 80s Show and a signing off. Thank you for listening. Thank you.